Hello listeners and welcome to this episode of Art Fictions and also to guest artist Dean Kenning. For our discussion today, Dean introduces us to John Maxwell Cootsie's 2013 allegorical novel, The Childhood of Jesus. It's the first of a three-part trilogy traversing the school days of Jesus and ending with, as you may have already guessed, else the spoiler alert is in the title, The Death of Jesus, published in 2019. Much like Allegory itself, the novel is set in a somewhere-nowhere place and is untethered from Cootsie's other wanderings which are grounded in South Africa. Yet unlike Allegory, here there are no neat lessons to be learnt, no cleverly tied conclusions to be drawn. Instead, The Childhood of Jesus is a puzzle of puzzles, which yearns to be read many times over. This open-endedness serves as the perfect entree to Dean Kenning's art practice, which is like the exploration of exploring. He makes lo-fi sculptures breathing patchy life extension into otherwise defunct technology. He creates social body mind maps, which are both a teaching tool for art students as much as for himself and he ventures across other media to open up spaces for ideas, questions, and observations of who we are and how we might live in the world. This is a very abridged version of our chat, which went on for uh, quite some time. So let's hear it, shall we? Dean Henning, welcome to Art Fictions. Yeah, hello, Julian. Thanks for asking me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm going to quickly read out a summary of your selected fiction. The Childhood of Jesus was written by John Maxwell Cootsie and published in 2013. David is a five-year-old boy who has arrived at some place accompanied by a middle-aged man, Simon. These are the names given to them on arrival. David is without his parents and has lost the note explaining why this is the case on the boat journey. So Simon assumes the role of his caretaker. The novel then follows them in this new life, in this new place, through a utopian socialist society. And I actually ended up dividing the summary into three categories of their very unexciting adventures. The first section of the book is preoccupied with Simone's attempts to find accommodation, food and employment. These are ticked off one by one, each with their own frustrations in dealing with bureaucracy. And the list is completed when Simon finds work as a stevedore unloading grain on the docks. The second section has Simon searching for David's mother. She is identified through incomprehensible means to be Inez, who lives at the residency, which seems like an awfully pleasant tennis playing cocktails at 5pm bubble with no tolerance for children. Then the final section portrays the determination of all three characters, plus the dog Bolivar and whoever else would like to join them. And it does seem that everybody's invited to venture to a new place to start a new life. These facts describe the platform for the story, though the devil or the god or something else altogether is in the detail of conversations between Simon, David and Inez as well as poignant exchanges with Simon's work comrades, the educational authorities, housing officers, and a medley of characters along the way. Yeah, that's a good summary. I thought it was interesting that you said they have a kind of uninteresting story, really. You know, it's funny because, I mean, all kinds of things happen. People die, people almost die, new sexual relations start up. 
there's adventures, there's crazy characters, but I think it's set out in almost like a series of uh, kind of parables. You know, each chapter is a sort of theatrical setup to discuss some philosophical issue. So there's a quite a artificial sense about the whole thing. I mean, it's definitely a very allegorical book, which is one of the reasons I'm drawn to it very strongly. You know, the book is called The Childhood of Jesus, but we don't encounter uh, anyone called Jesus. So what are we to make of this? Is David Jesus? That's a kind of implication, but everything is quite unsure. But there is a certain artificiality to the pace of this story and a certain kind of flatness. But I suppose there are these gaps, there are these cracks, there are these holes which become a kind of crucial component of the the central character of this story, which is the boy David. And we find ourselves falling through these cracks. And I think that's the crucial thing about allegory. You know, there's a lot of ways you can read this. I don't know if it is a utopia, which is one reading. But there is certainly that possible interpretation due to the way in which, I guess, virtue is discussed in relation to things like hard work and in relation to things like the fact that all kinds of things are free, like scenes where Alvaro, who's the overseer of the the stevedores, takes the boy to a football match and uh, Simon questions how much it costs to get in. And he just gives him a funny look and says, they enjoy playing football. Why would you pay for that? And the same thing happens with the neighbour who gives the boy music lessons. And again, the same thing. You know, I'm not going to charge. Why would I charge? We do music because we enjoy it. But of course, this is all premised on the idea that we don't get maybe something like the excitement and the glamour of um, Premier League football or uh, showbiz or concert hall music or those kind of things. So things are quite modest. So that could be called a utopia in some way. But of course, the whole way through, Simon is very much unsatisfied and feels like his desires and his appetites are not being met in this world, which is the best of all possible worlds. I read a few reviews and Joyce Carol Oates and Benjamin Markovitz, both of them seem to say something along the lines of, and Markovitz to a greater degree, that he's setting you up to read an allegorical novel, but he's not really committing to it. As you say, you're not really quite sure where you're at at any point in time and is this indeed a utopia because if it is it's not a very good one (laughs) because uh nobody's really happy and nobody's really unhappy well it's funny you should mention Joyce Carol Oates because I I like her a lot and I read her book My Life as a Rat which is an absolutely brilliant book and uh, of course rats and other animals play a very uh, (laughs) strong role within the kind of allegories I guess my kind of reading of allegory is very much kind of coming from Walter Benjamin, really. And Walter Benjamin talks about a kind of allegory as it's not really a kind of simple one to one notion of kind of bad allegory, let's say. But it's more a sense of piling fragments one upon the other in the hope that the kind of repetition of these stereotypes will actually lead to something, but without ever being sure that it will lead to something. I would say his heart is in it if your heart can be in allegory because of the very nature of it, I think. These questions of what is what is abstract and, and what is real, what is natural and what might be decided by a community or by the teacher who's teaching the philosophy course at the local institute or further studies. 
So there's all these kind of ideas from Plato and this idea of, you know, the goodwill, I think, is coming from Kant. And I guess these ideas of ethics, you know, how as individuals do we live our lives according to some universal notion or something which might be turned into a more universal way of living? For me, what is lying behind all this is how something like a utopia is actually created, because that's what is forgotten. I mean, the whole book is about forgetting in a sense, they cross over in this boat, they might have died and gone to heaven. They're something like refugees, really, whose first port of call is a, is a sort of refugee camp. They then enter this new country, this new kind of community in which they're provided for and they're given a job, but they, they shouldn't ask for too much. They should limit their kind of individual desires in order to fit in, in order to allow this society to function. But just like, I guess, the, the life of Jesus, behind that utopian ideal is always really a kind of struggle, which is excessive. And I think that's the kind of question, which is the very thing that's not spoken about. But allegory is always a way of speaking about something that's not directly spoken about. So this is the question for me. And this is why this book is really a kind of historical book, even though history seems to be eliminated entirely from it, unlike some of his other books, which are set in more recognisable, locatable times, such as Disgrace, which is set at the time of the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission's post-apartheid in South Africa. This leaves it open to interpretation, but that seems to be what's behind it. Can you just say something else about that struggle that you said you felt was the crux of the novel? You know, at one point there's an argument about history, can I find this quote? Absolutely. Um, it's brilliant. And I think it's a very funny novel as well. Um, I don't want people to be put off. I think a lot of it is a dig and a kind of parody of people like William Morris. The fact that these stevedores, these working men who do this really hard job of manual labour, of like lifting all this grain out of the boats. And Simon, who you call a middle-aged man, but they all call him El Viejo, the old guy. You know, he's too old to do this job of lifting all these heavy mm. sacks of grain. In their lunch break, they all have philosophical discussions, just like the, the Greek Agora or whatever, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> but that's what they like to do. And they have serious discussions about quite dull philosophical ideas about what's good and what's the nature of reality. And there's this one character called Eugenio. And all these names, you know, I ended up looking up all these names because they all have a meaning. You know, oh, all, so all these I. characters personify ideas in the yeah. allegorical style. But of course, Eugenio is the good life, but potentially also has those connotations of eugenics. There's always a kind of dark, you know, underbelly of these utopian ideas, you know, including Plato in the Republic and this discussion of infanticide and so on and eugenics. But Anyway, I'm going off the track, as you do. <laughs> but, but this is um, the thing. I did say to you when I had a quick chat with you yesterday that I just went down so many rabbit holes. Anyway, have you found his quote? This is comparing history with the climate. Is that the one? That's right. He does yeah. do that. Yeah. Uh, Eugenio says, our friend Simon says that we should get machines to do our work for us because history so ordains. But it is not history that tells us to give up honest labour. It is idleness and the lure of idleness. Idleness is real in a way that history is not. We can feel it with our senses. We feel its manifestations each time we lie down on the grass and close our eyes and vow we will never get up again 
even when the whistle blows, so sweet is our pleasure. Which of us loafing on the grass on a sunny day will say, I can feel history in my bones telling me not to get up? No, it is the idleness that we feel in our bones. That is why we have the idiom, he does not have an idle bone in his body. I love that ending. That is so hilarious. And um, of course, that's, you know, that's something that would happen in one of the Gospels of Jesus, where they're constantly uh, rereading the Old Testament in relation to this new life, you know, this new incarnation, this new revelation. But yeah, that comes from, uh, I probably should have introduced that, but there's a whole kind of discussion about Simon's, you know, really questioning why are we doing all this? And is this really the best of all possible worlds? And uh, wouldn't it be good to get a crane? It would mean we wouldn't have to work all day and labour like beasts of burden. The general consensus on the dock is, uh, well, no, because we're doing good work, because we're bringing sunshine into people's bodies through the medium of bread. And everywhere in this country, there is bread and water. That's what they seem to live on. Yeah. And as Simon says, you cannot live on bread alone. <laughs> the funny thing is, they eventually do kind of come around to his way of thinking and try out a crane and it leads to um, an almost tragic uh, situation <laughs> in which case they say no that was wrong you know we that was a terrible idea we should never have used the crane there's a, a kind of humorous satire I think on the idea of the virtuous worker in a virtuous society in the conversations about work, I ended up just flicking through really William Morris's book, Useful Work Versus Useful Toil. It did feel very romantic, this ideal of the very satisfied worker. Yes, that's my problem with William Morris. He's quite a boring bastard, isn't he, really? You know, and slightly too moralistic. You know, I mean, who's William Morris to say what's useless and what's luxury and that kind of thing? I was reading C.L.R. James's book, The Black Jacobin, got about halfway through there and then I interrupted my reading to do this podcast. But The Black Jacobin is such a fantastic book, which has a totally different story to tell about, you know, we can call it utopia if you like. There's a question of a new society and he explains it in the most gory, graphic, bloody, exciting way. And one of the things he says of the impetus of writing about the slave uprising in Haiti was that he was really sick of hearing about Africans as victims who'd been taken as slaves and tortured and killed. And there was a story of these slaves as the primary agents of history. It's like they were doing the French Revolution. C.L.R. James, you know, he's got a lot of sympathy for the French Revolution, but they were doing it properly because they were actually emancipating themselves from slavery, which is something that the, the French Revolution wasn't prepared to do for financial reasons. But, you know, he was a Marxist and he tells it in this incredible kind of historical Hegelian spirit. Whereas in this book, part of the torture of it is that there is no clear defined solution. And one of the occurrences that you're referring to of getting the crane and trying that out and that being a disaster is by this time, Simon's given up on why they don't need to gather so much grain in the first place because he's got to where the grain is stored to find out that it's mostly rats that eat the grain <laughs> anyway you know so there they are not only slogging it out but slogging that's it out right for the yeah rats. i 
you know, each chapter is like I say, it's a little act or a little moment. And this one is about this question of, you know, well, what, why are we really doing this? Don't we want something more? You know, there's no sense of progress or ambition or anything like that. And so he says this is like a pageant of heroic labor. And that pageant depends on an army of rats to keep it going. And so he, you know, he, he wants to make some changes because he believes in history. He believes in progress. And why is this? Is this because his memory has not been completely wiped and he's not been washed clean, as they keep saying? Well, he does talk at one point about he has a memory of having a memory, but he can't actually remember his previous life, but he can remember essentially that he had one. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, there's all kinds of references going on, isn't there? I mean, the first person they meet is Anna. She's from the reception centre. You know, Anna meaning grace or beauty when the boy comes down the next morning after staying in the, you know, really quite horrible temporary accommodation that they have. She asked him if he's been washed clean. But of course, they only have a cold shower, the two of them together with no soap. But I was thinking Anna is likened to a kind of nun because of the unflattering kind of clothes that she wears. She's also like a kind of Anabaptist, you know, someone who's kind of taken it upon themselves to be re-baptized. You also refer to the kind of memory of a memory. And I think this is just generally the case with, you know, really good allegory. And there's a sense of kind of bad infinity. And at one point, there's a discussion of bad infinity as well, which is a kind of mise en abeam, right? It's a kind of way in which you kind of fall down the cracks that David is seeing, first of all, seeing in the pavement and then seeing between the words and the letters. There's a, there's a point where he talks about the difference between gaps and cracks one of the things a child won't do is learn to read properly or he won't learn to count properly. He's unable to acquire this systematic or what you might call universal mode of understanding or seeing the world in the way that other people see it. You know, at one point when he is eventually sent to school, the teacher says he has a symbolic deficit. So this conversation is when, when David says, the boy, he says, but we can fall, we can fall down the gap, down the crack, right? And he's talking about reading and the words and, and the numbers. And uh, Simon says, a gap is not the same thing as a crack, my boy. Gaps are part of nature, part of the way things are. You can't fall down a gap, a gap and disappear. It just doesn't happen. A crack is quite different. A crack is a break in the order of nature. It is like cutting yourself with a knife or tearing a page in two. You keep saying we must watch out for cracks. But where are, where are these cracks? Where do you see a crack between you and me? I think it's a very profound book. And one, one of the profundities of it is this difference between the crack and the gap. And because the boy has a symbolic deficit and also because he's been infantilized and taken away from the real in some way, he's unable to pass from one thing to another, from one number to another, for example. Like he, he refuses to kind of count in the right order or add up or read, read the letters in the way they're supposed to be read to spell the words. He wants to do it in his own way. But that is the way in which we can make sense of things and progress is to have some kind of common language. But the crack is something different. The crack is like Simon says, it's this rip in the fabric of the real, which we can fall down. And of course, for David, for the boy, there is no difference. The gap is the crack. And as the book goes on, and Simon loses his kind of rational arguments against the boy's way of thinking and the boy's kind of petulance 
and actually comes to believe in the boy and does actually realize that this boy, David, is not just special because he's been spoiled by the mother that Simon has found, but actually that he sees something in him. And at that point, he follows him. At that point, I think for Simon as well, the gap does become something more like a crack. But this is the essence of allegory, which goes back to your point that we read these kind of things differently. And it doesn't have to be a book. It can be an image, can be an allegorical image where there is no kind of unity. There is no kind of naturalism. We're constantly having to put the book down because we're falling through these interpretive holes where suddenly the flatness and the blankness and the sort of monotony rips open and we're kind of in free fall. We're in a void. And that, for me, is what's amazing. And I, I mean, I've read quite a lot of his books. And for me, this is his best book by far. I've read a few of his books as well. And after Disgrace, he did finish writing those sorts of books where you could almost taste the soil on your tongue of the earth of South Africa. Absolutely. And, and like you say, it lacks the dirt, the earth, that is very apparent in some of his books, like Waiting for the Barbarians, you know, which again is a very allegorical novel. It's not mm. set in a recognisable place, although we assume it's associated with um, apartheid South Africa at yeah. that time. But this one might be heaven, right? Because we associate these paintings of heaven as being rather insipid and dull, as opposed to the Hieronymus Bosch hell <laughs> scenes, which are so exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sort of interrupted, slow reading in a way. And, you know, at one point I just started looking up the names and what they mean. And every name refers to some kind of characteristic. I mean, David means beloved, but obviously with references to the biblical figure within biblical kind of allegory. Jesus is born in the city of David and so on. And then we have Inez. She is, I guess, the stand-in for Mary, and her name means pure and holy and chaste, which actually made me think of Colm Toibin's story, A Testament of Mary, uh, where she talks about what it's like to have this son, Jesus, and all these blokes hanging around all the time and all these irresponsible things that he does. And then we have the fantastic Senor Dagger, who is perhaps a reference to the dagger, which is the knife in Jesus's side. But even the language, I mean, they it could be Spanish, but I think maybe it's actually something more like Esperanto. Okay. This kind okay. of idea, Esperanto, of a kind of, you know, Esperanto, which means hope. And in fact, in the novel, they end up moving towards this new place in a kind of circular movement, coming back to the beginning. This new star, the Estrellita del Norte, the little star of the north. Again, another reference to Bethlehem and so on. And going to Nueva Esperanza, the new Esperanza, the new hope. You know, he wants, he wants meat. He wants salt. Again, another thing that's quite funny about this yeah. style that he adopts in this book is that e- even when he has discussions about sex, people, maybe they're repelled by the idea, maybe they're disgusted, but it's not really a moral disgust. It's, it's something more like, aren't you too old for that? And isn't this a bit of a ridiculous act anyway? And haven't we got over these things? Yeah, absolutely. Simon does say at some point, Life is too placid in this place, too lacking in ups and downs, in tensions. Things do not have their due weight here. The music we hear lacks weight. Our lovemaking lacks weight. 
The food we eat, our dreary diet of bread lacks substance, lacks the substantiality of animal flesh with all the gravity of bloodletting and sacrifice behind it. Our very words lack weight. He's talking to Alana and then she goes on to say, isn't friendship good enough for you? You know, that sex and passion and storms, etc., is such an old way of thinking. That's right. Yeah, it's all about comradeship and goodwill. Now, it's interesting because I think you mentioned to me yesterday when we spoke that, yeah, he did become vegetarian before writing this book. And he wrote a book about that, of course. But the sacrifice, the bloodletting, this is kind of what I'm trying to get to with the, there's a kind of CLR James Marxist version of history as bloody struggle, which is really what something like socialism is about. It's not about a kind of blueprint for some perfect society where we decide what is useless toil, you know. (laughs) It doesn't eliminate human nature and even the less savoury sides of human nature, even the violence, but they become incorporated into some kind of ideal. You know, that's probably not a very fashionable way of thinking now about things because people are very reluctant. I guess they're kind of scared of, of what these emotions bring up but this is why I think this is what's lying behind the memory that's been forgotten I mean in a way another book it reminded me of is The Buried Giant by Ishiguro he's another very allegorical writer but again it's all about forgetting and the fact that a big cloud of forgetting has descended on this Anglo-Saxon land as the only solution really to this problem of war to this problem of how communities are formed in respect of who is the identified enemy, who is the outsider, who is the person who can be reduced to something less than human, who we can kill or enslave. But for me, and I think this is very much the way Walter Benjamin thinks about allegory as well, that there's always history underlying it. It's just that the history has become petrified Benjamin will describe ruins in a landscape and ruins in a landscape is the way nature becomes part of history. They almost merge together. For Benjamin, this is unlike the romantic symbol, which is all about unity and it's about an organic unity. It's about nature. It's about form is content. That eventually became modernism. That eventually became abstraction. These things are still very Mm. much with us. I mean, I remember being a student in one of our kind of convener group crit things and trying to talk about the content of a work. And one of the older students saying with a kind of sigh, form is content you know, as if I was a total idiot and hadn't kind of grasped the basics of what art is about. And so the separation of form and content is something which still feels false to us. It feels artificial. This is what I think is behind a lot of critics' dislike of the childhood of Jesus. Not only is it not psychological, but it also doesn't put us in a believable world. Everything does seem cut out and slightly flat, and we don't feel the earth beneath our feet, like you say. That becomes part of what the book is about. That's right. You were speaking before about petrification and this idea that history becomes petrified, and also in the context of nature. And this brings me to shit. Oh, yeah, fantastic. The fact that eventually they get on to the subject of poo 
and the pig is a filthy animal because it will eat everything even its own poo and then David is completely horrified and says you mean there's poo in my sausages uh, I mean, it's um, brilliant. I mean, I think, you know, there's probably lots of reasons why I chose this book or it, or it chose me. I did actually just find it outside my studio. But um, one of the reasons is because I've got a um, four-year-old boy who only eats sausages. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, over the period of a kind of year, he just stopped eating everything else and only really likes sausages. So that was quite funny. And the boy is a blank slate, like children even when you think they're not listening they are they're absorbing it they're taking it in and there's a way of reading this book whereby all the craziness that happens to the boy and his kind of delusions you might say uh, of making miracles of being able to see the cracks through the words and so on all stem from things that simon has said to him when he's trying to be rational so the poo is also really, it's a kind of parable of the difference between the individual and the collective. And it turns out to be a question of what he calls general poo. That's right. Because he does talk about the ownership of poo. It's a bit difficult to, <laughs> to say that without saying what he does in the book. Yeah, but... so what's happened is that Ines, the completely random woman who has been living in this kind of upmarket residencia, and she lives with her brothers, and she's given this role as the natural mother, the real mother of this child, and she accepts the role eventually, and then kind of cuts out Simon altogether until some point where her toilet gets blocked. <laughs> and he has to go and fix it so he's literally fishing out and there's a lot of fish in this book but he's fishing out all this shit with his yeah. bare hands and the boy david wants to stay with him he wants to help him and he's saying this is not really a job you can help with you should go out and play and the boy's saying well i can give you ideas and um he's saying well it's not really a job where you need ideas <laughs> and the boy says why can't i stay it's just poo there's a new note in the boy's voice, a note of challenge that he does not like. It's going to his head, all this praise. Toilets are just toilets, but poo is not just poo, he says. There are certain things that are not just themselves. Not all the time. Poo is one of them. Inez tugs at the boy's hand. She's blushing furiously. Come, she says. The boy shakes his head. It's my poo, he says. I want to stay. It was your poo, but you evacuated it. You got rid of it. It's not yours anymore. You no longer have a right to it. Once it gets into the sewer pipe, it's no one's poo, he goes on. In the sewers, it joins all the other people's poo and becomes general poo. And the boy's wondering why Inez is cross. And he says, well, she's just embarrassed. And she shouldn't be embarrassed because a plumber is just like an undertaker. It doesn't say to himself, how interesting. Who would have thought that Senor X or Senor Y would have poo like that? So he asks, what is a dead body? And he says, dead bodies are bodies that have been afflicted with death that we no longer have a use for. But we don't have to be troubled after death. After death, there's always another life. You've seen that. We human beings are fortunate in that respect. We are not like poo that has to stay behind and be mixed again with the earth. What are we like? What are we like if we are not like poo? We are like ideas. Ideas never die. You will learn that at school. Yeah, I think there's a brilliant parable of the poo and the general poo and why the poo mm. no longer belongs to him. But throughout this book, you know, David is very um, possessive. 
I think there's a lot about ownership because it's whose yeah. child is this? This is my child. Yes. This is not my child. And does a child belong to its parents? Are its parents the people who physically bear the child or are the child's parents the people that look after the child? And is a child owned by them or is a child a child of the world? Does a child own itself? Oh, my goodness. Ownership, I think, is a really big thing. We are going to have to move on. I thought we might actually talk about your work at some point. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, well, you can if you want. <laughs> but I, I don't want poo to be the end of our discussion about the book. But I did think mm. there was a beautiful sort of unfolding and refolding where the caretaker Joseph character, Simon, you know, he starts off being this really wise, caring guide in the beginning. And then I felt slowly he just became more and more impatient, patronising. You know, we get to a point where it's almost like, oh, just shut up, David. Stop asking me bloody questions. And while David starts off, no, I'm not going to read properly and no, I'm not going to go to school and my teacher's an idiot. And then slowly he became the wise person. It was a real sort of changing of the guards, but very, very slowly. No, I think that's right. He, he talks about duty a lot. But he sees his only duty to find the boy's real mother, who, of course, is not the real mother. She's just some random person. But he denies David in a biblical sense. What do you mean by that? He relinquishes his responsibility. Oh, I see. This constant insistence that he's not the boy's father. Then the next section of the book really starts where they're on this kind of excursion. And there's a little map and there's a winding path and there's a star on the map which says where the beauty spot is. The boy sings a little song and it's actually a poem by Goethe, which was put to music by Schubert. And it's about a father riding with his son through the forest on a horse, holding him closely, tightly, telling him that he won't let him go. He'll never let him go. But if you actually look at the rest of the full poem by Goethe, the boy gets stolen away by the elf king. And of course, they're on the bus on the way to the residencia where he does abandon Mm. the boy. I mean, Mm. he later, through the incident with the shit and the block toilet, ends up kind of coming back. He reclaims him, but also he's very influenced by people that say, you know, a son needs a father. And the Christian tale is that Joseph is all but insignificant. But this is the reassertion of the importance of the father, which I felt really pleased that he didn't just ditch the kid and move on as if fatherhood is optional. Yes, he has a kind of riposte to um, these people who will say, you know, you have this strange kind of intuition or feeling. Like, what yeah. the hell is that about the natural mother? Blood is thicker than water, all that kind of nonsense, you know. And he says to the mother, the child owes his substance, whereas the father merely provides the idea. So again, we're back with this kind of idealism and this idea that what's really substantial is the mother. And of course, when they do go to the school to see the psychiatrist, she says all all the boys' problems at school in the sense of not being able to accept authority, not wanting to read and saying he can do magic and all this kind of stuff comes from his question about his origin and this question of who he belongs to and how can he know who he is if nobody will take responsibility and give that kind of symbolic stamp, if you like, by saying, well, yes, I am your father. And so this is why the boy identifies with Dagger 
who we later find out his first name is actually Amelia, which means rival. And he is the rival. And he, like you say, he's the kind of interesting, you know, semi-criminal, exotic figure with the young girlfriend and the alcohol and the knife and <laughs> all this kind of stuff, who at one mm. point kidnaps David and lets him watch cartoons and then eventually buys him a present, the, the magic kit. What did you make of the cloak? The cloak of invisibility. No, it's great. Yeah, it's like... You want um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want one? But that's essentially what faith is. You know, faith is yeah. really something beyond rationality. A miracle is really magic. It's a magic trick. And I think towards the end of the book, there is a kind of vision. And maybe I will just read this passage because I find it so incredible in terms of, kind yeah. of stuff we've been thinking about. And particularly in terms of this kind of idea of a bad infinity. And this is a unique point in the book, actually, where there's a kind of belief. He does see something. He doesn't take it as a kind of just a child being slightly weird. He looks into the boy's eyes for the briefest of moments. He sees something. He has no name for it. It is like, that is what occurs to him in the moment, like a fish that wriggles loose as you try to grasp it. But not like a fish, no. Like, like a fish, or like 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 a fish on and on then the moment is over and he is simply standing in silence staring did you see says the boy i don't know stop for a minute i'm feeling dizzy i can see what you're thinking says the boy with a triumphant smile no you can't you think i can do magic that's more towards the end of the book and i think it, it marks a, a kind of shift where he's kind of fallen through that crack and he's now willing to follow the boy, which is what he does, and, and become part of this holy family, the three of them, and picking up disciples along the way. Absolutely. And Simon, of course, is possibly a reference to Simon, who's the zealot, the unwavering disciple of Jesus. I think it's time that we moved on to your work, Dean. I'd like to talk about three parts of your practice. I thought we'd start with the sculptures and then the charts and then the film Metallurgy, which I picked apart like a complete nerd. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that it's going to help anybody if I talk about all the questions I had. So just starting with The Origin of Life, the 2019 piece, which I believe appeared first at Beaconsfield Gallery. These are mechanical devices with sort of rubber arms, which are playing electronic keyboards, which are placed across the floor. And it's like this sort of chaotic symphony. And I must say, my heart goes out to the invigilator that had to stay with that work. Yeah, well, there was no invigilator, so um, <laughs> don't, don't panic. Uh, that was a kind of generative aspect of the work, actually, because it was controlled by sensors. So it became participatory. So what you're saying is as a guest walks around, that triggers the work to play? Yeah, it triggers the work, but you don't know what exactly is triggering. So okay. uh, there's metres and metres of, about 100 metres of cable in this room, just all on the floor. You probably could follow <laughs> this spaghetti of cable to its um, destination, which are these little, like you say, little kind of rubber finger type appendage things that, you know, flop up and down on various keyboards. But generally, you don't know. The reason for that was because they don't have an invigilator up in the gallery. Yeah. So I had to come up with a device that would allow this thing to run for six hours a day without being on constantly. 
Sorry, yeah. I hope I'm not insulting the work. I did think it had all the musical prowess of one of those monkeys that <laughs> does the symbols. Yeah, thanks, Gillian. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, it's not musical. <laughs> There's no composition. There's no musical composition involved. It's completely random in terms of my own placement of these little motorised rubber things that actually bang on the keys with the various keyboards. And it's also contingent in terms of how many people are in the room, which way they're moving. And there's a certain kind of randomness even within the motorization itself because it's all very low tech. It's not controlled by computers or mm. anything like that. This low tech is very much a part of your practice because when I say the electronic keyboards, they look a bit aged. You know, they've been around these keyboards. Yeah, they're secondhand. Most of them are like 80s keyboards. They're totally redundant technology, but everything acquires a value over time. So they used to pick up these things for a couple of quid, but now a lot of them are like 30, 40 quid on, on eBay. But yeah. I'm not that interested in that side of it. You know, I don't fetishize these things. Like to me, they are kind of old junk and they are kind of redundant and that's what I'm doing when I'm bringing them back to life is I'm bringing bringing back redundant technology really and giving them a new function. There's actually a fantastic essay by John Roberts on your kinetics and this was for Psycho Botanical at Matt's Gallery in 2019 and he talks about machine technology in art and he says that it tends to either fall into the category of an attack on technological progress or aesthetics. So either it's tech terror or it's sexy tech, whereas your work doesn't fit into either of those categories, really. That's right. Yeah. John Roberts wrote a really fantastic essay. And I think his take on it, which I totally agree with, is that really it's not about failure, I'm not really interested in this art about failure. And I'm definitely not a technophobe. <laughs> so he, he's trying to say there's a kind of relation between technology and jouissance. So it's a more kind of psychoanalytic reading, which I think is correct, because really what I'm interested in is not the music, but the kind of aesthetics of movement, creating something which has the feel of something embodied but rather embodied maybe like a limb that's been cut off or something that's been grown in a laboratory and has escaped, something like that. So there's a, an identification that goes on on a rather instinctual level or kind of primal level. That's what I'm interested in. Sorry, what was the term that you used just before? Jouissance, uh, yeah, this kind of surplus enjoyment, which again is a kind of Lacanian idea of something beyond pleasure, something where I guess desire tips over into a sort of drive, which we enjoy for its own sake. There's a kind of masochism involved in that, a kind of pleasure in pain. So when you talk about the movement are you also referring to, or are you only referring to, the movement of the sculpture itself? Well, it's a kind of aesthetic of movement in the sense that I'm not so interested in how things look as a formal composition, either That's in terms right. of materials or in terms of sound. But I am interested in a sort of visceral affect that might be created when something is moving. And I think this is related to a primal instinct of movement. It goes back millions of years where an object that starts moving might be food or you might be its food. There's something that I think horror taps into quite a lot, but I'm trying to create that effect in sculpture. 
the question of futility actually is quite interesting. Although I'm not, I'm not interested in the kind of aesthetics of failure. I am interested in futility, <laughs> and um, that probably does relate to the book. We might not want to go back to the books we've spoken so much about it, but you know, back to this question of labour-saving devices <laughs> as opposed to kind of old stuff that doesn't really work properly, and yet it might be a place in which certain thoughts can be generated out of. Uh, a kind of encounter with something which we find quite weird, even if we can see the clockwork, you know, we can see what's actually happening. I did another work, quite an early work, which I remade more recently called Renaissance Man. It's as if you'd been turned into a kind of trough or box and you're kind of rocking up and down forever. I'm just going to explain that just to be able to visualise it. It's like a tray or a trough, as you say, with arms and legs and a head, and it's performing endless push-ups. So <laughs> the tray tilts up and down like a seesaw. With that one, actually, with all of the ones I've seen, I feel a sense of, oh, you know, even the non-faced one. Well, actually, that's the only one with a face that I can think of. They're all trying so hard. They're very earnest, but <laughs> they're not going to achieve anything. Yeah, and there's a kind of pathos, just, right? Yeah, they're just existing. But they're so dedicated to what their task is. But I feel yeah. sad for them. They're existing, yeah. There's a kind of bare life aspect to them. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. To bring up a gambon. No, it's funny because my dad's a carpenter and, you know, I used to watch him sawing a wood, kind of fascinated by just mm. the repetition, the kind of rhythm. Because even, even though these sculptures can be annoying in their sort of jerky, jerkiness, but you can, after a while, you get into the, the rhythm of them and they become a rhythm, they become a kind of pattern. There's something potentially hypnotic about that. And to this day, my dad doesn't like power tools. He's really stuck in this kind of manual modes. Mm. I was probably already quite old when he bought an electric drill. I mean, he, I remember oh, as a child mm. that he used to drill with a, with a hand drill. You know, and obviously what he's doing is purely practical or it has a practical end. It's not redundant in, in that kind of pathetic sense of futility. But there's something beyond the kind of creative work where there's a kind of enjoyment in the rhythm itself even in the kind of misery of the repetitiveness of it and the pain of it and the physical manual labour of it, which is probably not human. It's probably something quite inhuman and I think machinic. So that's partly what I'm interested in with these things. And a lot of it is, I imagine, finding really basic mechanical parts and making them do something, which is a joy, I imagine, in itself. Well, <laughs> maybe joy is not the right word here. I wouldn't say it's a pleasure. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's pleasure in it, particularly when, when something works. But no, it's quite painful, actually, <laughs> most of it. But it's a methodology in the sense that it stops me having to think about all those things which I think are still quite daft about art, which is those aesthetic kind of formal decisions that you make about what goes here and what goes there. I do think there's a way in which it doesn't really matter. In terms of the method, I'm prevented from going down that compositional route by the sheer right. practicality of having yeah. to get the thing working and to keep working. But I don't want to get too good at it either, because I think when you get too good at it, that shows in the work. The work looks a bit too slick, a bit too professional. And I don't want to hand over too much of what I'm doing to an expert.
I am making sculptures that are more robotic at the moment. This is for the Mark Tanner Award. Yeah, so I'm actually working with a, someone who does programming for small kind of robotic projects and so on. I don't like a lot of kinetic art. You know, if I think of someone like Paul McCarthy, who's an artist I like yeah. a lot, really a big influence on me. But his kinetic work, don't really like them. And as he's gone on as well, and as he's got more rich, or his galleries have, you know, <laughs> have so much money to spend, they don't know what to spend them on. They build these big apparatus. There is an economy attached to artistic judgment. I think, where there's a sense of you've just spent too much money and too much tech on producing this, you know, in comparison, fairly small effects. Whereas what you want is the opposite to happen. You, you want something quite modest and basic to produce something which really has a grip on the viewer, seduces the viewer. It is like magic, again, to go back to the book. I am interested in magic. Like I want art to be magic. You know, some people sometimes say, what well, you know, what's the relation between the, let's say, the more diagrammatic work that I do and the more kinetic stuff? And I think it is in a sort of proliferation and excess and something more kind of labyrinthine, something where you can get lost or has an actual kind of bodily effect and so is against this elimination of anything that could potentially go wrong or could potentially be embarrassing. Certainly with a kinetic sculpture, it is just set up to go wrong. I'm not fetishizing that failure. You know, I don't want them to break. Yeah. But let's say it's a slightly masochistic endeavor, which again is related to the kind of idea of jouissance, I suppose, whereby um want to kind of push certain limits of what it is possible to achieve with some motors and some bits of rubber or something like that. Just coming back to Paul McCarthy for a moment, I mean, one of my favourite go-to works of his is the film Painter, where he has a bulbous nose and the big hands and he's making a painting. I assume you know of that film. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, uh, it's fantastic. And this kind of describes what different people we are, I think, Dean, is that in preparation for this podcast, you actually returned to reading the Bible, whereas I, <laughs> I went to Kenny Everett. You know that big hand film he does? Yeah, no, um, I know, yeah, I know exactly. And I, I, and I he's remember, the reverend. I remember Kenny Everett, <laughs> and it and it has that kind of hysterical excess. Uh, it's kind of slapstick and silly voices and very simple kind of props, isn't it? Yeah. You know, to watch it again, it would probably come across as just kind of really childish or something. Yeah. I, I like the dumbness. But there's also something in that that is very accessible in that prop thing, because you had a discussion with Emma Cousin on her podcast, and you were saying that your work is like a prop for, you know, like a sci-fi movie or actually probably for Doctor Who circa 1982 <laughs> or something, yeah. where you've taken it out of the telly or out of the scene and it's just there in the stage setting. So there's something about these sculptures that I feel is accessible technology, you know, something that we could all possibly do with our hands. And that's the comfort in them or the way that we can relate to them or connect with them. And the contrast would be if something goes wrong with my phone or my television, if I had a car, if something went wrong with my car, actually, I can't tinker with that mechanical device and fix it. That's right, yeah. No, it's, it's a really yeah. important point because I think especially now because we're, we've all been 
really kind of locked in to screen-based communication mm. and um, screen-based teaching as well which I find quite unhealthy and maybe that's too moral but I think your point is absolutely correct that there is an ethic attached to DIY practice which was very much a staple and I guess a big influence on me in that kind of pre-digital children's TV Doctor Who like you say which also had the fantastic music all made with magnetic tapes and all the all the kind of stop animation stuff and I think something does seep in like there's a feel unlike the world of novella which seems to have no substance no juices or whatever there's a feel for something even if we do watch it on telly when it's a physical thing that's being manipulated or something probably day of the triffids or something like that is a kind of reference point to these plant-like sculptures that I do yeah it's interesting like my dad was always knocking up some building or extension or fencing or whatever yeah very familiar and there's something of that exposure to the analog but also living in a digital world where you can appreciate both whereas there's something of the future of say your son Francis and certainly my children where this analog world is going to be like a memory of a memory Yes. Although, of course, you know what they say, all the CEO billionaire techs in Silicon Valley send their kids to schools where there's no computers and where phones are not allowed, you know, because they understand the nightmare that they've created and they don't want that for their kids. So moving on to the charts, how I got onto your work was somebody posted a piece of work, which I then bought from you which I don't even know the name of the work. Yeah, it's a Jetsify flowchart. Yeah, so I often say to people, look, can you put it in a chart for me? I don't understand what you're saying. I do love charts. And when I was doing my master's, Professor Jean Fisher. Jean Fisher, oh yeah. Yeah, she, she yeah. walked past and because I was doing these charts of numbers and nets And because I was a mature student, so she said, oh, what did you do before? And I said, oh, I studied economics. And she was saying, oh, what do they mean? And I said, oh, I'm not really sure. She said, well, didn't you learn anything? And I said, well, not much that I can remember, but I remember there being fantastic charts. And uh, I don't think she was very happy with that, but she was incredibly clever. So, (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. This is an argument that Susan Buck Morse makes in an essay where she talks about how the economy was invented by the people who made the first chart. William Playfair at the end of the 18th century graphically showed the balance of trade between two different countries or the the increase in the export of this product or that product and you suddenly saw it and when you saw it then you had the economy before that what did you have you just had markets and I guess the kind of individual experience of something Mm. incredibly abstract it does solidify things doesn't it and in your Jackson 5 which very seriously (laughs) (laughs) flowcharts don't blame it on the sunshine arrow don't blame it on the moonlight don't blame it on a good time blame it on the boogie Blame is the subject of the diagram, let's say. Various arrows leading to these different kind of prospects. 
sunshine will just revert back to the start again <laughs> moonlight so on and until you get to boogie which is the correct one <laughs> oh fantastic and it's yeah it is blame it's it's for me it it's the song and my memory of seeing the song with my sister and my cousin but they're not all like that you also have mind body maps Kids use mind maps a lot in school, but these are not mind maps. These are social body mind maps. So they're specifically different from mind maps because I don't really like mind maps. I think there's a problem with mind maps, which is one of the things I was trying to do with those was to try to move beyond an idea, which is located in a subject, let's say, and try to get a more kind of external or kind of alienated point of view by beginning with an artwork you're doing, but treating it as if you really have no idea what it is which I think often is the case and if it's a good work is especially often the case but there's a kind of habit of thinking that a work originates from an idea or from a something very specific such as a biography or um, something that's happened or some emotion so it's a way to get a distance on that by really expanding out from this question mark towards a more satisfying notion of how things start connecting up which we are part of but we might not be aware of so like you say the thing about diagrams is they offer Mm. a kind of synoptic view and a kind of more intuitive feel for rather dispersed and complex processes and relations you use them in your teaching right Yeah, I use them. I use a lot of diagramming in my teaching. I mean, one of the things I've always done since I started teaching is I've both taught in the studio and I've talked in the lecture or seminar room. So there's always that big split. I've never liked that division. And of course, that exists within my own practice because I'm very much someone who writes and makes often quite messy work as well. And so for anyone who is quite put off by theory, And having to write, which a lot of students are in art college. And, you know, a lot of students are dyslexic and they do art because they don't feel they're academic. Is to introduce drawing, which is what a diagram is. You know, it's a hands-on thing which hands over control to the person who's doing it. So all my diagramming and my interest in diagrams is less to do with those kind of informational charts, which tend to be a kind of consumption of information and more to do with having some agency over things we feel we don't have much control over because we don't have a lot of control over, but we can find a sort of orientation and not only an orientation within what exists or what is said to exist, but new ideas, new directions, Mm. new ways of making work, new thoughts about old work, which might lead to new work. So Mm. it's generative and I've done it a lot. And from my experience, it always does work. Uh, I mean, sometimes it works better than others, but as long as you engage in it, you can't really do it wrong. It's not a judgment over the quality of your drawing or the quality of your concepts even. It's really about the way you might find to express new perspectives, which are new to you, on what you thought was very familiar, i.e. your own artwork. It's quite difficult to understand them without seeing them, but there are examples on your website. Yeah, because I do it myself. And then some of those ones I've done with my own work, I turn into something more like an artwork uh, in the sense that I work on it a bit. I might turn it into a print or a painting. 
nobody does it the same. But I'm, in, I'm interested in the way something about the idiosyncrasy of the actual artwork mm. gets incorporated into the diagrammatic shape. I want to move on to metallurgy of the subject, which is a piece of work that I've seen in a film format, but it also has a poster format. And you can probably tell me what other iterations that there's been of it. I suppose in a way, metallurgy of the subject for me plays on that joke of what's the difference between capitalism and socialism. In a capitalist society, man exploits man, or I should say person exploits person. And in a socialist one, it's the other way around. (laughs) Just to describe it very briefly, we start with a drawing of an individual who is standing upright uh, with their arms outstretched in a T manner. It's almost like a Jesus or the Vitruvian man. It's actually Anthony Gormley's Angel of the North, but obviously he has those uh, references. Right. Why, why did you choose that? Well, partly because it's metal and the, oh, of course. The, the allegory, in a way, operates yeah, yeah. through this idea of the transformation of metal in an alchemical sense. So that in itself mm. is mm. a doubling. It's not necessarily literally about a chemical process, but that's just a metaphor for mm. a spiritual process of transformation. And so it's a bit of a joke. I mean, I try, I try to have a joke, I guess, because Anthony Gormley, he's, he's such a successful uh, individual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's everywhere, you know. They're supposed to be his own body, aren't they? But he turns them into a universal figure. So there's something quite immodest about the whole, oh, <laughs> the whole thing. It was just a kind of a useful or usable emblem for the individual not not an individual but the individual as a concept really uh you know this is where all our desires and ambitions go towards is an individual which can compare favorably to Mm -hmm. other individuals by trying to rise above them you know usually in this kind of myth of meritocracy but in fact we know it doesn't really work like that that's right but i do i do want to say right at the outset though that I didn't even realise this, but the Vitruvian man is this idealistic uh, figure of a man within a circle, within a square. But what uh, Leonardo da Vinci did was use the proportions of real male models rather than the original proportions set out by the Roman architect Vitruvius. So I think that's really cheeky. Is that known that he did that? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, it's just so rude. Did he call it the Truvian Man then? Oh, actually, I don't know. That's a decent question. I mean, he is one of my great artistic heroes, Leonardo, I guess, like a lot of people. What is the term for him, you know, outside of artists? What is that term when you are poly, a polymath? Yes, he was. Yeah. He definitely was. Yeah, yeah. I think he was, you... a, he was an inventor. I mean, he was more, yeah. he was better known as an inventor. Actually, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Including yeah. making military innovation and so Did, on. Didn't he yeah. also invent and an architect early ideas of was it sewage systems or? He might have. Yeah, I don't know yeah. actually. Yeah. I think you could be a polymath. Well, maybe one day when I grow but up, you're, I'm, I'm going to be a magician or a polymath. Yeah, yeah. What do they? What do you call it? A, what's that expression? An expert at none. I can't remember the first bit. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> this is one of my interests in in diagrams. Actually, I find it is a way to connect different things, different disciplines, different ideas, and bring yeah. them all together and see what happens. So the start of the film comes up with a text 
as a subhead to metallurgy of the subject, which reads, on the sacrificial transmutation of the individual for the sharing of singularities. And I am here to say, don't let that put you off. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's so intimidating. But along with the music by English Heretic, which is brilliantly placed in the film, we go through these phases of thinking about the nature of things and the privatised being and, you know, obviously privatisation and finitude with the idea of I'm trying to say it in really simple words. The thing is, I couldn't say it in your complicated words because you you have a very sophisticated way of expressing yourself. I'm definitely not at that level. What you were explaining, it was a sort of method I had of just reading quite a lot of this quite hard philosophy around ideas of community and communism, particularly Jean-Luc Nancy, the inoperative community, but also Agamben, the coming community which is a very allegorical text, actually, very interesting to relate to the childhood of Jesus because he has these Mm. small chapters, but I think the first one's called Limbo. But also going back to Bataille and Hannah Arendt and I was looking at Raymond Williams and stuff like that. And of course, what I do when I read philosophy is I do what you liked about economics, which is I try to draw it because there's often a kind of dualism or a kind of tripartite system or some kind of dialectical movement or a kind of semiotic unfolding. So they lend themselves to a sort of diagrammatic way. But I, I need them also just to get a grip find my way around these things so I did that with the diagram but what I did with the voiceover when I did the animation that you're talking about is I sort of almost like a kind of cut-up technique although not quite so random kind of picking up things that I'd underlined that maybe I didn't completely understand or particularly the way that things somebody was saying seemed to relate to something someone else was saying without any connection being made in the texts but I had made those connections because I happened to read these two things and almost the way that Benjamin talks about allegory just kind of piling them in piling them on top of each other maybe kind of reordering them maybe editing them, but somehow something comes out of that. Something is generated simply through sticking these quotations together. You know, it might seem like a little bit more deliberate because I have this single voiceover. Oh, right. So that's very David Bowie of you, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know Bowie was using that kind of Mm. William Burroughs technique. It did work quite well. So it's not exactly cut up. So it's, not, it's slightly different from that, but it's more about the way that one thing seems to connect to another. With an audio yeah. voiceover, you can kind of say these things and they flatten out. They flatten out in a way that a mm. diagram mm. flattens out or even an image, let's say an allegorical image, like, you know, those alchemical images, which was really what I was influenced by and really what got me into both diagrams, but particularly the combination of the diagrammatic with the allegorical Mm. And I see it a bit like there's a there's a kind of simplified diagrammatic way in which a certain process can be mapped out on the page. But the kind of allegorical emblems which I use to then describe certain ideas, such as finitude, such as the movement from the individual to the commonality, become like little cracks to get back to the cracks. There's a big crack in this work as well. And they almost become like these holes that you you fall down. They give a depth. If the diagram kind of flattens out to give you a synoptic view, 
then what allegory does is give you these little kind of holes, these little sort of wormholes that you can disappear down. And so for both diagrams and allegory, what they have in common is a certain temporal mode, which is not the kind of immediacy of, of a lot of art that you see, but is something that involves a reading and a rereading and a reading which is never quite the same because you can approach it from different ways. And so, again, to maybe come back to my choice of book, that's exactly what I appreciate beyond or because of the very sort of flatness and monotony, is that there's a space for contemplation that actually allows you to fall down some kind of mystery, which is potentially infinite. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. In fact, I don't think I've prepared quite so much for any of my podcasts because I just didn't feel I could really be prepared for this discussion. You know, I felt like I needed to like live a whole life <laughs> first <laughs> and think all my things and then scoop them up in a sack and present them as a fait complete. In fact, it reminded me of I once read about a woman who stated, now that I'm in my 70s, I think I'm ready to be a mother. <laughs> I think that's true. On metallurgy of the subject, there's a beautiful closing where you have an illustration of a horizontal person and you talk about an infinite network of caves and the support for this person. And through that, these holes appear, speaking of cracks and holes and gaps and possibilities and these sort of roots underneath create vines that go through the body. I can't quite work out the picture, but they seem to lead to crystals and houses and mm. books. And I saw this wonderful solo exhibition of Kiki Smith's in Spain some years ago. And she had a sculpture of a body through which these crystals were growing, just like your drawing. And I thought, wow, that's an incredible coincidence that two different people have come to a similar, mm. and I won't say looking because I don't mean looking, but some sort of similar tone in their work through completely different means. Yeah, no, I don't know that work. I'll check it out. But certainly in getting to the point of collectivity, whilst avoiding the essential being, which is mostly associated with a sort of fascistic or nationalistic or religious idea of an enclosed identity as measured against the outsider. I didn't want to describe a clear utopia in terms of mm. <laughs> the actual organisation of this society. I mean, I'm, I'm actually very interested in those practical questions of how we organise a socialist or a communist society. Mm. But within this kind of allegory of the alchemy, I did want to suggest an emblem which is enigmatic, but does seem to propose that to live in a community and to think communally doesn't mean a kind of homogenous identity, a kind yeah. of unified way of thinking, but precisely offers ways for new things to be created and actually allows all kinds of idiosyncrasies to and singularities mm -hmm. to form, hence the slightly alien, because I think they are alien, they're inhuman, they're non-organic formation of crystals, of course, within the cave, because just like David, I'd prefer to be in the cave, in that realm of the imaginary realm 
rather than um, supposedly outside staring at the truth as it shines its light down upon you. It's the dark spaces where you might actually discover something. Too true, like within the, um, the cape of invisibility, within which anything can happen. Let's move on. We need to finish up <laughs> or we're going to be here for 24 hours. Yes, yes. I think you've covered over your artists and books, but aside from the Bible, did you want to... I know you, actually you had nearly chosen Ridley Walker for this podcast. Yeah, no, I love, um, I love Ridley Walker. I did almost choose it. There's another one I almost chose, actually, which is really one of my favourite stories, and it has a religious Christian theme as well. The Three Versions of Judas by Borges. And again, another very allegorical writer, but he keeps it locked within short stories rather than <laughs> drag you through a kind of trilogy of novels. It's really about this sort of double and beyond double, a kind of doubling of the doubling way of thinking. Mm. How do we interpret Judas? And, you know, I was brought up a Catholic, so mm. I still on some level believe in all this stuff even though I don't really believe in it, I kind of do still need mm. it and mm. appreciate it. And, you know, it's very deep in my bones. <laughs> you know, the myth, which is about a certain kind of rootedness and sense of belonging and sense of meaning and mystery and magic and all those things. I also find that because I, I was also raised Catholic, because you can understand one uh, series of myths, it's much easier well, I find it much easier to connect then to other people's idea of myths because so many yes. of them are crossovers between different religions. Absolutely. No, I think myth, it's a question. It's a political question. We can't live without myths, but we can't just create them artificially. They are deep-rooted. And most of what we do is not about a kind of conscious, rational thinking through and then acting on what we've decided is the best course of action. That's not how things work. Reading the three versions of Judas, which I did a long time ago when I was a student, after kind of giving up on religion and going to church and not believing and all that stuff, it sort of reignited a sense of blasphemy. And I realised there's something in there. I'm genuinely kind of shocked by this short story, the three versions of Judas. Oh, it's fantastic because I won't give it away, but the logic of it is impeccable. And yet you end up with everything turned on its head. So I almost chose that one. But I guess one of the reasons I chose The Childhood of Jesus, just because, like I say, it was sitting outside my studio that I just moved into. I love the romance of that just being found. You found each other. It yeah. found me, yeah. And I do, I do believe in that, you know. And, you know, there's those kind of resonances with coming across stuff that you don't get when you buy something online. So there's, a, there's another dimension. There's another kind of allegorical layer, you might say. Yeah, there is indeed. Did you want to... We could go on and on. Yeah, we could do it again tomorrow. And <laughs> But maybe that's a good place to end, you know, I think. See, I sort of feel after all that you are going to have some, you know, really profound summing up. Actually, I've got one. Okay, you do it then. <laughs> um, no pressure. I'm reading somebody else's work. Goodness me, I couldn't come up with one myself. So... Cootsie's written a number of books that are more self-referential after Disgrace. And one of them was Summertime. Anyway, in it, there are these critics and they are four women. And one of them says, 
keep in mind, of course, this is Cootsy writing about somebody writing about Cootsy. To my mind, a talent for words is not enough if you want to be a great writer. You also have to be a great man. And he was not a great man. He was a little man, an unimportant <laughs> little man. How can you be a great writer if you are just an ordinary little man? And I'm really glad we're ordinary little people, Dean. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I definitely am. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as Simon says in the book, we all want to be special. We all want to be recognised. And again, I think that he's, he's talking about Dagger and the problem with Dagger and why he wants more money. And the boy sides with Dagger. And of course, the boy is told he, he's special and, and he does want to be recognised. And I guess that will be part of the story as we continue. And we will continue, but not right now. Dean Kenning, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers. It's been, it's been great to talk about it. So thanks a lot. It's been fantastic. I'm just going to go and watch something completely rubbish now on telly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. thanks so much. I'll see you later. Okay, bye. Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest artist, Dean Kenning. If you'd like to support the series, please subscribe and rate, both of which make a huge difference to access for other listeners. As always, you are welcome to get in touch with me directly via my Art Fictions 2020 Instagram or my website, gilliannipe.co.uk. Happy listening and happy reading and happy art viewing. Till next time.